Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with freelance reporter Scott Carter, who spent several months on an Oklahoma Watch assignment looking into a multinational company that manages public water systems uh, all over uh, the country and several in Oklahoma cities. Scott, uh, tell us who or what Veolia North America is all about. Veolia North America is a subsidiary of a giant company based out of Paris, France called Veolia Water. And they manage water and wastewater systems basically all across the globe. Now, how big is uh, Veolia and where all do they do business? Well, it's huge, but I don't know where all they do business. I know they're in several countries. We know they're in many states in the United States, and they're in several cities in Oklahoma, but we don't know where all they are in Oklahoma. Why, why don't we know? Because uh, the way the regulatory system under the Department of Environmental Equality is set up, what you have to report to DEQ is who operates the system. That's basically the name of the operator and a license. But they're not required to say whether that operator works for a public utility or a private company. And and the operator is an individual, not a not exactly. A yeah, it's a person. Yeah. And, and so what what all does Veolia do? Well, they run the facilities, uh, and they're responsible for the testing and running the facilities and maintaining the facilities. Uh, they come in, and it, from what I've been able to gather, it was a big turnkey approach. They handled everything. So uh, why would a city or town in Oklahoma hire a, a big multinational company to manage their water system? Wouldn't that be a lot more expensive? Well, that's what you— that's, I think that's what a lot of people imagine, and there's probably some truth to that, but what Veolia pitches is they can do it, that they can improve the water quality and they can do it more and be more cost effective in the process. And Veolia is not the only company that does this, right? No, I mean, no, they have the, other, there are other companies other out there that yeah. do that too. That's so, correct. So tell us about what happened with Veolia in Hevener, Oklahoma. Well, Veolia operated the Hevener water facility, and the water got so bad down there that people refused to drink it. They would ship in pallets of bottled water and use that. It stained clothes. It looked, there were pictures in the local newspapers down there of the water taken from a person's tap that looked darker than iced tea. Uh, it was filthy, and it was unusable, and it was making people sick. And there was people were complaining and they were going to city officials and city officials pointed to Veolia and Veolia pointed to bad infrastructure, old pipes, things like that. And uh, what about the cities of Moore and El Reno? In Moore, Veolia has been operating uh, the facilities there for several years, going back more than a decade. And in Moore, they regularly have... Uh, uh, notices where they've exceeded the level of arsenic that's allowed by federal uh, and state law. Uh, they continually exceed the levels of arsenic. 
And in El Reno, the uh, facility operator there, who was a Veolia employee, uh, was found guilty in federal court of violating the Clean Water Act because he was uh, submitting fraudulent tests. Um, so uh, does that tell us that there are, are problems with the drinking water all over Oklahoma? Well, it, it raises concerns. There are I know there are problems with water in Oklahoma when you— uh, look at uh, specific areas, and you know there's high levels of mercury. There, in like in more, there's they exceed high levels of arsenic. But I don't think you can say that all drinking water in Oklahoma is bad. But I do think it needs a much closer watch on what water is good and how it's being treated. Uh, are there other towns in Oklahoma that have contracted with Feolia? There are some. I've been able to track down a few. We know they're in Tulsa and in Bartlesville, in Tecumseh, uh, the Latimer. They're in the Latimer County Rural Water District. Those are a few that I know of, but I haven't been able to track down all of them. And they're uh, operating in all those places now, or or they have been at some some point. Both. The, a lot of them are still under an operation. I, I believe, for example, in I believe Veolia is operating the Edmond water facility right now. And they have been in Oklahoma City before. They're operating Tulsa. They're operating Bartlesville. Uh, how, uh, how would one know if Veolia was operating the, uh, the water system in their town? Uh, is there agency that's responsible for tracking that? Well, there uh, you could call DEQ, but I don't think DEQ could just tell you the name of the operator and the license number. You would probably have to contact your city hall and find out whether or not they've contracted with Veolia. That's about the only way to do it. So what resources does the public have? Uh, where can they go if uh, they have a problem with with their water? Well, they should head to the Department of Environmental Quality first. That's going to be their first stop. They also, if there's continual problems with their water, they need to start putting pressure on their public officials, city council, mayor, city manager, people like that. All right. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, you can read Scott's work on uh, Veolia and their operations in Oklahoma uh, on our site, oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Oklahoma Watch, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers democracy. In 2015, Oklahoma lawmakers authorized the state to create an online voter registration system. But seven years later, the work remains unfinished. Democracy reporter Keaton Ross has the latest on what's causing the delay. Keaton, what was the legislature aiming to do when it authorized the online voter registration system? Yeah, so the main goal was to add a tool that could help improve turnout, kind of moder modernize the election system. The previous year in 2014, turnout was pretty dismal uh, in that midterm election. So the goal was just to give people a tool, make, remove one step of the process and help get more people um, and even young people who are more likely to use this tool in, involved in, in elections. How many other states have uh, online uh, voter registration systems? Well, when this bill originally passed seven years ago, it was 24. Since then, it's increased to 40. So 16 additional states have 
have implemented online systems since Oklahoma passed the bill. Um, so now the state is, is kind of lagging behind nationally in terms of, of offering the service. So 80, 80% have it available. That's a lot. Uh, what, what are some of the benefits of being able to register online? Uh, kind of like I just mentioned, you know, it's one, one less step. Uh, you're, it's more accessible to a lot of folks, especially the, the younger population. Uh, the way it works now, you can fill out the form online, but you have to print it out, sign it. Um, and either deliver it to your county election board or mail it, which, you know, if you're, you know, a young person in your late teens or early 20s, you may not have a printer. Um, it may just be one more step that kind of dissuades you from from following through in the process. Whereas if you had online registration and a state driver's license, uh, you could just fill out the form online, submit it, and and that would be all taken care of. It doesn't seem all that complicated. Why is it taking the state so long to to build this out? So the the way the the language is written, authorizing an online system, you need to have uh, they're required to link it with the Department of Public Safety's driver license system. Uh, so when it launches, the the way it's working now, you'll have to input your driver's license information, and that will be cross checked with DPS. The issue is uh, the Department of Public Safety has had some technical issues with that. Of course, there's been the real ID um, implementation and upgrading their computer system, and that's that's been sort of a slow process, and that's been the main driver of, of the delay getting the system up and running. Does the state election board have a timeline uh, for this, the, some, some date they're hoping to launch? So... They told me they're hoping to launch it ahead of the November election, so folks could register um, for that online. Of course, that's coming up pretty quickly. The The deadline to register for the November 8th election is October 14th, which is a little bit less than three months. Um, so pretty quick time. Um, they told me they're hope, hoping to launch it before then, but these technical issues, if they're persistent or not resolved or it's not ready to launch, uh, we could see it, the work continue into 2023. Has the legislature done anything to try to speed this along? So in 2020, Senator Julia Kurt, a Democrat from Oklahoma City, filed a bill that would have required the, the state to launch this online platform by March 2021. That that got through a committee but stalled later in the process. Um, but I talked to her yesterday and she told me that she plans to introduce similar legislation if we get to the next legislative session in February and uh, there, it still hasn't been launched or there's no concrete update. Now, you recently spoke with some voter access advocates. Are they hopeful an online system will improve turnout? Yeah, they're, they're hopeful, um, especially with younger folks. It's just one more step that makes it easier. And there's, I mean, most things uh, you can do online, you just filling out a form or doing whatever. And um, the election registrations, a, a step behind, you know, now in 2022. So that's one more thing to make it easier. Um, but uh, one representative I talked to from the League of Women's Voters told me that, that, you know, that's just one element, it will be helpful, but they're still planning to do a lot of advocacy work, outreach work, in-person events, because um, that's what they believe drives um, people to register and vote is, you know, having those in-person conversations and whatnot. So 
Now, uh, you mentioned the November 8th election and the deadline to register for that. Uh, what what election-related deadlines should people be aware of? Yeah, so there's that deadline I mentioned, October 14th, to register for the general election. We also have a runoff um, on August 23rd, and the deadline to register for that is July 29th. And also the deadline to request an absentee ballot, uh, if you're looking to do absentee, is August 8th. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Keaton Ross reports on democracy for Oklahoma Watch. You can read his story about electronic voter registration and all of his other work at OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Last week, race and equity reporters Ari Fife and Lionel Ramos and summer intern Brooke Sherman visited Riverside Indian School in Anadarko for a Native American boarding school listening session. That event was hosted by U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, and was attended by about 300 survivors and community members. Ari's here with us to share some of the takeaways from that event. Ari, for those who may be unfamiliar, what are Native American boarding schools? Uh, Where were they? Are they still around? Tell us about that. Yeah, so Native American boarding schools were institutions run by either the federal government or religious groups or both, um, starting in the early 1800s. And generally, they were used as kind of mechanisms for forced assimilation, um, separating Native American children from their tribal communities. Um, Many children were forced to change from traditional clothing when they arrived at these schools, and they were also punished for speaking tribal languages. The federal boarding school system consisted of 408 schools across 37 states and territories, and present-day Oklahoma had the greatest concentration of those schools. Across the country, there are 183 federally funded elementary and secondary schools that still exist, Um, and there are four boarding schools that still operate in Oklahoma, Riverside being the oldest federally operated school in the U.S. So what was Secretary Holland doing in Anadarko? Yeah, so last summer, after the discovery of 215 unmarked graves at a boarding school in Canada, Holland announced a review of the legacy of the federal boarding school system in this country. Um, And as part of that effort, she's launched a Road to Healing tour of listening sessions to document the experiences of boarding school survivors. And for reference, Holland is a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe in New Mexico, and she's also the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary. She acknowledged during the listening session we attended that this would be the first time a cabinet secretary would be discussing boarding school policies while sharing that generational trauma that that many of the survivors and their family members have. So the first report of the boarding school initiative uh, came out in May, right? What, what did that tell us? So the Department of the Interior analyzed all the boarding school records it had at its disposal to create an official list of federal Native American boarding schools. And this was the first time that a list like this has been compiled by the federal government. Um, the report also unpacks some of the enrollment statistics for these institutions, as well as some of the practices that took place inside them. 
Um, and at the end of the report, the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, Brian Newland, uh, makes some recommendations for the federal boarding school initiative, which includes creating a list of marked and unmarked graves. So uh, how did this particular event fit into a broader federal effort? Yeah. So the four goals of this federal initiative are identifying the facilities um, and sites of federally backed boarding schools, identifying the names and tribal identities of boarding school students, identifying the locations of marked and unmarked burial sites, and incorporating the experiences of survivors and their descendants into reports. And so these listening sessions are obviously part of that last goal. And Holland said before the tour began that it was important for her to acknowledge the pain of survivors and encourage healing. So uh, when you and Lionel uh, and Brooks were down there, what did you hear uh, from uh, survivors uh, from these schools? What, what kind of themes did you notice? Yeah. So we noticed once we started talking to people that boarding school experiences are really mixed and it's hard to kind of put all the stories that we heard in one category because some people had really traumatic experiences at these schools and some people were really thankful for their time there. Um, generally, we found that uh, more graduate or more recent graduates and uh current students have a more positive experience than um, alumni who graduated around the, the mid-1900s. Um, and we spoke to one student named Angel Elizares, who's a senior at Riverside, and she talked about how going there was the only way that she was really able to connect with her tribal culture. Um, and her mom even told us she was wary of sending her daughter to a boarding school because of the traumatic experiences she'd heard from her parents, who were also boarding school students. But she kind of warmed up after Angel had such a positive experience. So um, what did you hear from others? Was the public invited? Did did community members speak? What else did you hear? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so there were, you know, there were about 300 people there, so... There were survivors, um, family members of survivors, just tribal members who were interested in hearing people's stories, and then also tribal leaders. And some of those were um, Shawnee Tribe Chief Ben Barnes, Prairie Band, Potawatomi Nation Chairman Joseph Rupnick, and Chickasaw Nation Governor Bill Anatubby. And Barnes was one of the people who spoke during the event, and he shared one of the testimonies of a tribal citizen who couldn't attend that particular listening session. Um, But he spoke and said that he thought Native American boarding schools were a chosen weapon to try to destroy tribal culture, but they failed. So uh, where else uh, are Secretary Holland uh, and her her entourage traveling, and what What are kind of the next steps for uh, the Department of uh, Interior's efforts? Yeah. So Holland has stops scheduled for Hawaii, Michigan, Arizona, and South Dakota in 2022, and they're announcing additional stops for 2023. Um, Assistant Secretary Newland said during the listening session we went to that he and his team plan to identify marked and unmarked burial sites and cemeteries and determine the total amount of spending 
or the total amount of funding spent by the federal government on this boarding school system in the future. I know, Ari, you guys are uh, not just uh, stopping with this one story, right? You're uh, continuing to cover uh, the Native American boarding schools for us. If uh, people have a story about those they might want to share, how can they reach you? Yeah, so my coworker Lionel and I would love to hear the experiences of anyone who's been affected by these schools, whether they were students or not. Um, you can reach me at AFIFE at OklahomaWatch.org and Lionel at L. R-A-M-O-S at OklahomaWatch.org. All right. You can also find those email addresses uh, on our website where you can read all of Ari and Lionel's work on this topic and others. That's at OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.